into a time of teaching at Sedaris. Happy teaching time. Uh, we know all this amazing gospel truth because uh, the Word of God has told us and somebody has, over the generations, faithfully taught that Word. And so every week at Sedaris we teach and consider the Word of God together uh, because it is through the teaching and the study and the consideration of God's Word that we find life that comes through the gospel truth. Now, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, grab them. If you don't, there's some on the ends of your rows. We're going to be in the minor prophet Nahum. And uh, Nahum is uh, one of the 12 minor prophets. It's called the Book of the Twelve in the Hebrew scriptures. And they're 12 minor prophets, not because their message is minor, but just because in length they're shorter than the major prophets who tend to, to speak for a long time. So the minor prophets, uh, if you've got one of the Bibles on the ends of the row, and you can ask somebody to pass it down if you don't have a Bible, it is on page 456, 456 in the church Bibles, or you can use the table of contents in your own Bible to find the book of Nahum, the prophet Nahum, who, who served and worked in the land of Israel in the 600s. For about 50 years, he had the job of prophesying, guiding the leadership and the kings of the land. He believed God had given him a message to speak to those leaders and to the people, and he did that faithfully for about 50 years between 663 and 612 B.C. So you see with B.C., you always start with the bigger number and you get smaller. So I didn't say that backwards, but it always confuses me even as I read it. So that's where we're going to be today, looking at his message. And his message is really one that speaks against any sense of entitlement. You heard about entitlement? A lot of millennials in the room today, always is, at Sedaris. Have you heard that millennials are apparently more entitled than any generation in human history? Have you heard this? Now go ahead and stand up if you think you're entitled. See, clearly, clearly, <laughs> yes, one in the back, honesty, thank you, Ashley. Uh, clearly, you are falling right in line with the representation of millennials. Nobody stood up except one. And actually, actually, Ashley, Ashley and I know each other, we grew up together. We were born, I was born in 1982. Were you born in 82, 83? 83, you're still in. I found out when doing a little study on the entitlement of millennials that they're, they've created a new micro-generation called the x which are those people that did not grow up with cell phones and social media and still had to wait for dial-up. A lot of you are like, dial-up? What is dial-up? Okay. Well, you're from Hawaii, so <laughs> things take, yeah. Have you seen Lion King 2? It just <laughs> recently came out. No. All right. Ships aren't what they used to be. But yeah, actually, if you're born 1978 to, to 1983, you're an exennial, and so you get relieved from some of the stereotypes. <laughs> Just, that was good for me to know. No. Entitlement. Do you know what entitlement is? The belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. Now, they actually did a study, uh, University of Hampshire in uh, UK, and they actually did say that millennials, those born in their study between 88 and 2004, were 25% more likely to answer in the affirmative to entitlement uh, questions 
So 25% more than those between the ages of 40 and 60, and 50% more than those 60 and over. Now, why am I harking on this? Guess what? If you're a millennial, you probably do experience entitlement. But guess what? If you're a human being, you also experience entitlement issues. It's actually something that we'll see in the prophet Nahum has been happening since the very beginning of time. It's a human problem. And so we could even say of the millennial generation, if you find yourself, and now I'm going to jump back in and put myself in that category, we are just the best at being human. Thank you very much. You can tweet that. My pastor said I was the best human being he'd ever met. Human beings struggle with entirement, the belief that we inherently deserve something. We deserve special treatment. Now, typically, entitlement comes along with two other issues that are common to human beings as well. You could even call them common human disorders, and that is hubris, which is another way of saying pride, and delusion. We think certain things about ourselves that aren't actually true. So entitlement, pride, delusion can be brought on by a variety of factors, including having much money or wealth or land, being quite educated or learned, possessing name or title or powerful position, and even a fourth, and this is interesting, experiencing God's grace and mercy. Let me explain. He's done this for me once. He loves me. Therefore, he'll love me again, no matter what I do, no matter how I live. Well, that's the story of the Ninevites, who we'll see again in the prophet Nahum. They thought, God, if you were with us for the book of Jonah, if you remember the book of Jonah, God sent the prophet Jonah to Nineveh and said, God in 40 days is going to destroy you because of your sin and wickedness, your injustice, your oppression of the poor, your brutal military tactics. He's going to make an end to you unless you repent. And they repented. In sorrow and sackcloth and ashes, they repented. They truly repented and God turned from his anger. That was 100 years before the prophecy that we'll see today. Well, what's going on? Hadn't they turned to God? Well, they turned to him, but then they turned back to their own way. And that's so many of our own stories. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great theologian of Germany during World War II, he talked about this as cheap grace, that we love to hear about how God is forgiving, how he's merciful. And every time we hear that, we love it and, and we praise God for it, but we do not take seriously who God actually is moving forward in our life. That's cheap grace. And Nahum will rail against entitlement and hubris and delusional thinking and cheap grace because it's childish and it's dangerous. It's childish and it's dangerous. In fact, uh, just last night, God gave me a great illustration through pain and a few tears with my son, Grayson. We had had a fantastic Saturday. This is Grayson's Saturday. This guy's got a good life. This is my three-and-a-half-year-old, not my three-and-a-half-month-old. This is my three-and-a-half-year-old, Grayson. We started the morning, me and him, we made some waffles together, homemade waffles with Dad. Pretty great start to the day. Then for lunch, <laughs> Dad took him to Wendy's for chicken nuggets and french fries. Dad's a real health nut. Only loves to give. <laughs> then 
we went to uh, the Seattle Pacific University women's basketball game because I was doing the pregame prayer for the team. So I got to go to Waffles, Wendy's, women's b-ball, and then the night ended with war. <laughs> with war. So he had experienced much mercy and grace throughout the day. He wasn't a perfect kid, and we loved him, and we still gave him good gifts that he didn't deserve like Wendy's. So he was experiencing God's mercy and his grace throughout the day, and he was loving it. He loves being a part of our family. He loves me being his father. And then bedtime came, and he looks at me across the room, and he says, me and you, Dad, we're equals. Me and you are the same. You say I'm going to bed, I'm saying I'm staying up. And he's hiding, and he's wailing. And so I do what all good dads do. I take him into his bedroom as he's kicking and screaming and punching me in the head, and I lock the door behind me, and I say, you're not getting out of this room. You might as well submit. <laughs> and he doesn't. He grabs books, and he, starts, and he starts pounding on the door while his three-and-a-half-year-old brother's sleeping right next door. And he's pounding these books against the wall. And I said, Grayson, I'm going to count. I don't even know if this, this is probably bad parenting, so if you're a pediatrician, talk to me or whoever tells parents don't do that. But I said, count to five. I'm going to count to five, and if you're not in your bed, I'm going to give you a spanking. Now, I don't know how you feel about spanking. We've, with our redhead uh, Norwegian Scottish child, we've determined <laughs> at times we need to use said punishment, and uh, a count to five. Well, I got to five, and he was still banging against the door, and he knew what he was doing because he was smiling at me the whole time for the whole countdown. He's saying, Dad, we're equals. I'll do what I want to do. Watch me. Well, we got to five, and so I delivered on my promise, and I gave him just, just no, no bruises, nothing, no marks. That's what my, my pediatrician told me. It's okay as long as I don't leave a mark. If you're looking for a pediatrician, come talk to me. <laughs> Got a great one. And, uh, and it was hard for me, but I did it because, because, why? Why am I telling you this story? Uh, the first reason is this. We are born with entitlement, self-delusion, and hubris. We're born with it. Grayson has it already. And he didn't learn it from us. He's just born with it. He's born into this nature. And the second reason I tell you this story is that when I finally dropped the hammer of Thor, because I'm Norwegian, it was not to intimidate or scare my son for the next time he disobeyed. That is not the primary reason that I did that. You know what the primary reason that I did, that I actually followed through? Because he needs to learn that me and him, we are not equals. I am his father, and he is my son. And that is the fundamental question that we get wrong with God. Grayson's asking himself, who am I? And he's also asking the question, who is dad? And if I do not teach him the truth, which at times will require me to follow through on my warnings, he will not be raised in such a way that he can avoid the dangers of this world and live a life that is wholly pleasing and satisfying to God and enjoyable for him because he's getting the fundamental questions who am I and who is he wrong and we get that question wrong all the time with God who is God and who are we and every time we get those questions wrong we are living into the danger of this world 
and the danger of eternity separated from a God who loves us desperately. And so while our God has much grace, giving us what we don't deserve, and much mercy, not giving us what we do deserve, we have to figure out that he's also a God of holiness and justice and power and eternity. We'll look at that in the book of Nahum. So, if you've got it, let's, let's do it now. Let's read a little bit from our prophet. As I said, he is ministering between 663 and 612 B.C. in the southern kingdom of Judah because, remember, there had been a civil war in Israel and now there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom and he is ministering in the southern kingdom because actually the northern kingdom no longer exists because Assyria, whose capital city was Nineveh, who the book is primarily a warning to, a prophecy against, because that great nation and empire had come in and conquered the northern kingdom in 722 BC. And so what we're going to see primarily in Nahum's prophecy is that he is predicting the destruction and fall of Assyria, and he's going to tell us why the greatest military, political, economic power that the world had ever seen up until this point is going to be wiped off the face of the earth. That's the book. That's the prophecy of Nahum. And he's going to explain why. As I already said, remember Jonah. Jonah had gone to the Ninevites already. God loves the Ninevites. Even though they're not a part of the people of Israel, he gives them a chance to turn to him as the one true God for every nation. And they did, a hundred years before, turn to him. But clearly, their evil ways have returned. Clearly, the leaders at that time in their nation had not passed on the truth of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, who spared them to the next generation. And so they had gone back to worshiping their old gods, worshiping injustice, living cruelly and corruptly. And God says, you know what? It's coming again, my judgment. It is an interesting thing to note, if you remember from our, our, our talk about Jonah, is that at the time Jonah was preaching, why were they so ready to repent? Well, at that time in the history, 100 years before, Nineveh was kind of going through a bit of a lull economically, a lot of their vassal states that they had conquered were warring against them. So things weren't going very well. They were struggling then, but now in the history of Assyria at this time, they were thriving. They had never been bigger. In fact, right at the beginning of the time that Nahum started prophesying, they had just conquered, and he'll say it in his book, they had just conquered the capital city of Egypt. So their empire went all the way from Turkey in the north all the way down through modern-day Iran and Iraq, all the way down into the southern end to, to Egypt. That's how big and massive the Assyrian Empire was. They had much prosperity, and so now they do not repent. They do not turn back to the God that they then. This happens with us, too. We often turn to God when we're going through a hard time, a lull. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, God often seizes that opportunity to show who he really is, to show his love and compassion to us. But we must be weary of the fact that when things start to go well, we will want to then start doing it on our own again. That is always the way. This, this is not just Nineveh. This is not just Assyria. This is us. We struggle. Once things turn around, once we get that job back or get a new job, Maybe our marriage ends and we have a new marriage. Okay, now I've found love again or a new relationship, a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend. Now I'm not sure I need God anymore. This is such a common thing that we must be 
aware of it. So that in times of prosperity or in times of struggle, we turn to the one true living God and let him be our source of joy and goodness and forgiveness. Turn with me to the very end. There's only three chapters in Nahum. Turn to the very end because I want to to show you the end before I show you the beginning. Now, with the book of the 12, there's always connections between the books. We call these canonical insights, meaning the reason they're put in the order they are is not just uh, chronologically, but thematically, so that as we read them as a whole, so if you read all 12 minor prophets together, it's helping us to see one bigger picture. And remember last week we talked about in in, uh, Micah that God is our shepherd. God gathers his remnant together, even after they've been scattered, and he heals the people, the remnant of God. He protects them as a good shepherd does, and even lays down his life. Remember we talked about that last week? If you weren't here, go listen to that sermon online. It's very important to see the flow of the prophets. Now look here at the very end of Nahum, what he says about Assyria. He's not talking about Judah or about Israel. He's talking about Assyria. Look, look at what he says in chapter, uh, starting in verse 17. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in a day of cold. But when the sun rises, they fly away No one knows where they are. Their princes and their scribes have fled them. Verse 18, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Do you hear this? Everything that God said he was for his people Israel, Nahum is now saying, Assyria, because you did not turn to God, you have none of that. But you are laid bare and open to the disaster that God is bringing upon you. And it is a great disaster. Now why don't they have God on their side anymore? He was in their side just a hundred years before. Why has God left their side? What is it? What is truly their unforgivable sin that they could not experience God as their shepherd this time? Turn back to chapter 1. Look at verse 1 through 11 and read with me. This is an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book and the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. That's where he's from. This is what the Lord says. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His ways is a whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel, they wither. The blooms of Lebanon wither. The mountains quake before him. The hills literally melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. But he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversary, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. 
What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For there are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. That gives you a pretty good summary of what the rest of the book of Nahum is about. And I want to focus in here on verse 9. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Why? Trouble will not rise up a second time. They had bowed before him, but guess what? They, had, they stood back up. Just like we talked about. In their time of prosperity, they stood back up. God is saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. This is a harsh message. God's saying, I'm not going to be sold a bill of goods. I'm not going to be sold false or temporary repentance. Do we have Hebrews 10, Tim? Let's throw it up. This, is, this theme is picked up back again in the New Testament. It says this, since we have confidence to enter the Holy... He's talking to Christians here. Since we have confidence to enter... This is uh, the book of Hebrews of the New Testament. Confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up through, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, the flesh of Jesus. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, also Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast, okay, that thing's in my way, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, this is what we celebrate at baptism. This is what we celebrate at new faith, that this has happened. And so the writer of Hebrews is just reminding us of the truth that in Jesus, like we talked about last week, this fire that God will pour out against all uncleanness Jesus Christ covers us, remember we talked about the mother hand, covers us so that we can experience life even as he takes upon death himself, right? And so um, Jesus Christ has done that for us, and when we accept it, we experience all the fruit of that as we just read. He goes on to say, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ drawing near. For if we go, now, okay, this is why we do consider cohorts. This is why we meet weekly in groups to encourage one another, meet together, to, to stir each other up, to love for God, love for one another, and good works. If we go on, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You hear it? It's the same thing the prophet Nahum is saying is about to happen to Nineveh. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, has, he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is New Testament. This is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it's the same message that we're seeing here in the prophets. Now, let me be very clear here. What he is talking about 
is not someone who makes a clear, authentic, sincere profession of faith in Jesus Christ and truly knows that they cannot save themselves and they fall upon the grace of Jesus Christ, that person is saved once and for all. So when he talks about those who go on sinning deliberately, he is not speaking of the person who goes on sinning as they struggle with their sin, as they hate their sin, yet they still continue to sin. Because you know who that person is? Me. And it's each and every one of you. You continue to wrestle and struggle with your sin. What he's talking about is people like the Ninevites who love the mercy and grace of God that get them out of a jam, but then they just go on deliberately and joyfully sinning. That's the person who needs to rethink, do they truly believe in who God is and who they are and what Jesus has done for them? So he's not talking here about anybody that sins after they receive Christ because then we would all be in trouble. <laughs> he's talking about those people who can't, they don't even think twice about it. They love it. They don't see any problem with it. Not those who wrestle with it, okay? Now, for those people who just turn right back, go their own way, and, and love deliberately sinning against the Lord and really forgetting about him in their life, he talks about the judgment that's due. So I, I, you could just read this on your own. We don't have time because uh, we kind of got a cramped service here. But there are so many just vivid pictures. This is poetry that Nahum is giving us of what the destruction of Nineveh and the Assyrians will be like. So just turn to chapter 3, and I'm just going to read one such section. But you can read, and, and really the whole book's about it. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. That's what Nineveh is. They are full of blood. Blood is on their hands. They have murdered many people. They are full of lies. They steal. There's no end to, those that, uh, to their prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly charms who betray nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. And this is what God says. You, you hear just the destruction? Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift, you, lift up your skirts over your face. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds like something the Scottish would do. Okay. <laughs> You don't want it. Uh, jump ahead here to verse 12. All your fortresses are like fig trees with your first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. You see that destruction? The city is coming to an end. And it says, the Lord is against you. So it's the Lord that is bringing an end to Nineveh because they've turned away from him again. Now why is God taking this standing back up that Nineveh did, that Assyrians did, why is he taking it so seriously? Why isn't he giving them grace and compassion again? The answer is, 
They have seen his goodness. They have seen his mercy close up through the prophet Jonah. And yet they still think that they can do it without him. Another way to say this is they've gotten the wrong answers to the right questions about who God is. So the right questions are, who is God and who is Assyria? Who is the owner? Who is the renter? Who is in charge? Who is dependent? Who is all-powerful and who is only having power at the pleasure of the power himself? Who is eternal and endures? Who is finite and temporal? Who is remembered and who is forgotten? Those are the right questions. They've just answered it wrong again and again and again. And they haven't said God is the owner, God is in charge, God is all-powerful, God is eternal, God endures, God is remembered, and we are but finite. They've gotten it wrong. And because they've gotten it so wrong about who God is, God eventually says, I must punish you for trying to stand before me. They'd seen the truth of God. It was clear to them. And yet they chose to live entitled, proud, delusional lives. And God took offense. And he said, I am against you. Why is he against them? In part, or, or why does his offense lead him to be so against them? Look at chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind and a storm. Okay? So God is a jealous God. Here's what jealousy means. It doesn't mean that God's like petty. It's not like the bachelor. (laughs) He's not like, oh my gosh, I should totally win. He would win, by the way. Jealousy here means that he has envy or zeal for his own property. Okay? You can say it like this. God is proper, his proper reaction, which is offense, being uh, offended, because his self-consciousness has been injured. So what is God's property? It is his own name. And it is his people. And the Ninevites, the Assyrians, they have offended his name and his people, and he is jealous for those things because they are his own property. So God is resentful in his self-assertion of who he is and who they are. Does that make sense? So what is God's name? What is his reputation? What is he like? Who is God? Well, he is slow to anger. We see that in verse 3. His slow to anger does not mean that he is weakness, though some take it as such. Right? Some think, oh, why isn't God doing more? Why hasn't he stepped in? Why does he allow evil? It is not because he lacks power. Because that's the second thing we see in this verse. He has power, and he has it abundantly. He has as much as he needs. It is not indifference. He cares about the unholiness, the uncleanness of the Ninevites, because that's the other thing that we see God says. He is holy, verse 3. No guilt will be left unpunished. The guilty will not be cleared. Here's what God is reasserting. These Ninevites, they think they can go on 
doing whatever they'd like, injustice, stealing from the poor, they cannot because I am a holy God and I cannot allow in my presence unholiness, uncleanness. And that's why he says again and again, you saw it, he will make a complete destruction. In verse 14, he says, no longer will their name be remembered. Verse 15, they will be utterly cut off. Why does God's destruction have to be so complete of Nineveh? Because of his holiness. Because of his holiness. And because of his love for his people. In fact, here's an interesting fact. Until 1842, we didn't even know on the map where Nineveh was. Why? Because God so utterly destroyed them. He made their name be forgotten. He utterly cut them off. And part of the reason for this is his holiness, and part of this reason is his love for his people. If you ever wondered why God has to judge, why doesn't he just let everybody go on as they are part of his world? Well, it's out of love for us because the Israelite people being persecuted and murdered by the Assyrians. And God wants his people, those who turn to him and experience faith in Jesus Christ and redemption from our sin in Jesus Christ to live in a world without evil, without people like the Assyrians. And that is why the book of Nahum is ultimately a comfort to us. It's meant to be good news to the people of God because God will not let those who offend his good name and offend his people live ultimately in his good world. He will come and remove all those who are infecting his good world that he has created for us to live in in perfect harmony. Okay, that's the book of Nahum. Look at verse 6 again. I'll just finish with a few ways. How do we apply this book to our own life? Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? It's a great question we all need to ask. When we see God as he actually is, we should faint. He is so much bigger than we are, so much more powerful, so much more holy, so much more wonderful. But yet, we think we can stand before him. When in fact, when we get the answer correctly, when we start saying, no, God is eternal, God is all-powerful, God is infinite, God is holy, and I am but a created, limited, power-challenged, finite, and unholy sinner, our right response is to get as low to the ground as we can in the presence of God, to prostrate ourselves before God Almighty. Only when we see God as He actually is and ourselves as we actually are, do we start to break the bonds of entitlement and pride and self-delusion? Who can stand? The answer is no one. But here's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has said, for those of you who turn to my son, whom I've sent to deal with your issue of unholiness and uncleanness, and lack of power. For those of you who, who, who come to him, I will clothe you in his righteousness, in his power, in his goodness. And so when you bow before me, God says, when you prostrate yourself on the ground, think of somebody stepping into the throne room of the king and coming before the king, and you say, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. God does this. He, he looks at you, and he put, pulls up your chin, and he looks you in the eye, and he says, welcome. Stand up. 
you're a part of my family. You see that? The opposite happens when we walk into God's throne room and we stand before him like we're equals with him because then he says, I must teach you who I am and he will force you to bow down. He forced Nineveh to bow down because they thought they could stand before his indignation. So we've got to get it right. Who is God and who are we? Because we've got to bow before him. But the second thing that this helps us to do is it helps us to see the full beauty and glory and love of God available to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why it's such good news. When we see God as he actually is and we see ourselves as we actually are, then we start to rightly see what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. We start to fully grasp the true scandal of the gospel that that God chose to step down and put on our finiteness. He put on human flesh. That God, not a God of our imagination, but we see him as he is. He chose to step down into our powerlessness. He chose to live a life of human temptation, yet without sin, only to be falsely accused, corruptly tried, and wrongly convicted of a crime we all commit, which is pretending to be God. Let me say that again. Falsely accused, corruptly tried, and then wrongly convicted of the crime that we actually commit, which is pretending to be God. And then he died the death for that sin that we should have died. And he absorbed that wrath that fury that we read about in Nahum that's poured out and melts the hills, he absorbed that on himself so that we might have life after death. It's unreal. That God did that for me. Who am I? It should break us to our knees. It should literally take the breath out of our lungs so that we can't move when we think that God did that. That is what it means by the often misused term, the love of God. We use it so often and we know nothing of it because we don't actually see God for who he actually is and see ourselves for what we actually are. And if we start getting it right, if we see ourselves honestly, if we know that we are helplessly undeserving of even the faintest attention from that God, and then we see what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, only then will we begin to comprehend the grace of the Almighty God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are, by your word, giving us a record of those who have gone before and have missed the mark, who have not seen you as you actually are, but have believed something about you that is, is, is false and untrue, but that you give us your word, that you gave us the prophet, so that we might, before it's too late, come to know who you are, God, and who we are as finite and small man. And yet that we might know how loved we are, even in our finiteness, because of the work of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, and his resurrection 
that you did that for us. We can't comprehend. We don't understand. But we turn to you now. God, I don't know the, the place of everyone's heart in the room, but I know my own heart, and I know I often fail to see your majesty and power and wonder and true glory because my eyes are fogged up by this world. So wherever my friends are at, God, help them now in these last few songs to see truly who you are and to come before you as we're about to take communion, to come before you, maybe for the first time, come before you and bow our knees, the knees of our hearts. Help us to not think that we can stand in your presence just because we've heard about your grace and your mercy or just because we've experienced. But help us truly know we cannot stand until you tell us to stand. We pray this. We pray for these new parents, God, who will be so tested as they raise their children to know and to fear the Lord. We pray that we as a community would all remind each other of who God is and who we are by the Spirit of God working in and through us so that we might experience God's grace to its fullest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.